Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Okay, so Martha, you're so great at asking everyone else questions, but I'm going to turn the tables and ask you a question this time. Okay, I'm ready. What is the hardest part of being a nanny that you didn't expect? Oh, this is an easy one. Managing the parents, for sure. I went into nannying thinking it's all about the kids, but there's this whole other half of the job, which is really important for my career progression and job satisfaction. Well, I can totally understand that. As a parent myself, it's often hard for me to understand what my nanny is doing with my kids all day. Right. It's like the work is invisible. I think that's often why it's undervalued as a profession. Absolutely. Well, what if I told you that you could make this invisible work visible? Ooh, how so? Well, it's a new app called Raise Kids. With features like an event log, photo sharing, skill-based activities, scheduling, chat, and care, it will be obvious to parents all you're doing to develop their children, and they will love you for it. Well, that sounds amazing. How do I get it? It's available on the App Store and Google Play, free to download, but there's way more to be explored with a premium subscription. Oh no, do nannies have to pay for it? No, we do not want nannies to pay for it. It's very much designed as a tool for nannies that has huge benefits for parents. And we fully believe that parents should pay for this as a work tool for their nannies. Phew! Okay, just curious, how much does it cost? So it costs $20 a month, which is less than one hour of childcare in most areas. And for the listeners of the podcast, we're giving you one month free, which nannies can use themselves to explore or provide to their employers to test together. Well, that's an easy decision then. Where do listeners go to get this discount? They can go to raisekids.com, R-A-Y-Z-K-I-D-Z, slash Chronicles of Nannia, enter their email, and receive a unique one-time use code in their inbox. Awesome. Okay, everyone go check out Raise Kids app on the App Store or Google Play to explore this professional tool tailored to nannies just like you. Hey listeners, did you know that Chronicles of Nania is on Patreon? I wanted to specifically tell you about the bonus episode for this month. For October, Tessa from Shenanigans and I recorded a bonus episode all about true crime and some of our favorite true crime and why we are fascinated by it. It's a really fun, wonderful episode, very different from the podcast. So if you head over to patreon.com slash chronicles of Nania, you can listen to that bonus episode when you join the wardrobe tier. And don't worry, just like it has been for five years, the podcast is always going to remain free to you. I'm not changing that at all. But if you want bonus episodes, early access, ad-free episodes, a Facebook group that's Patreon only, head on over to patreon.com slash chronicles of Nania and join the community. Enjoy this episode.
welcome to the Chronicles of Nannia, a nanny resource podcast made for nannies by me, a nanny. This is your host, Martha Tyler. And this week, we are going to be talking all about mindfulness with kids. And to do that, I have brought back on Jill Stansberry. Hi, Jill. Hello. I'm so excited to have you back on the show. Thanks for having me back. It's good to be here. Yeah. So for listeners who might not know if we've, we've had some new listeners join us recently. Um, Jill was on the podcast a few months ago talking about positive discipline and Jill actually was my positive discipline instructor. So uh, it, we nerded out pretty hard in that episode. (laughs) Um, So go back and listen to that. Um, And I expect we'll probably nerd out pretty hard in this one as well, because we're both pretty passionate about it. Excellent. Um, Let the nerding begin. Yes. Beautiful. All right. Before we get started, though, talking about mindfulness completely, I would love uh, to hear your journey working with kids. What brought you to this point? Um, Well, I've always been interested in, in meditation. I've been probably meditating since I was about uh, 27. And that was a few years ago, (laughs) (laughs) a good two decades or more ago. And, um, and at the same time, I've always kind of been working with kids. So I started out in uh, a Montessori program as an assistant teacher, fresh out of college. And then I went and got some training and sort of moved through early childhood a little bit of elementary and a whole lot of middle school and high school became an art teacher for a while nice and did art and literature with in middle school and high school in a in, not in a Montessori environment and um began to realize like oh I kind of miss Montessori and I feel like I keep trying to make everything a Montessori school so I went back into Montessori and I was a curriculum coordinator at a charter school in um North Carolina for their early childhood program. Then I ran a small early childhood program on the south side of Chicago, which is mm-hmm. where Martha is from. Uh, shout out to All Day Montessori. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and then I sort of, through one thing or another, ended up in China um, mm-hmm. teaching in early childhood programs uh, that were bilingual or international. And my last job there was a pretty amazing one. I thought my job title was um, early childhood social and emotional learning specialist. And so I got to go into about 14 different classrooms and teach kids about social skills and problem solving and um, meditation and play skills. So I was like, don't tell anybody, but they paid me to play with kids and meditate with them. So anyway, um, I felt really lucky and blessed to have that opportunity. And it was a great for me to get to explore ways to kind of flesh out what I had always done in, in Montessori programs. Um, meditation is often incorporated, but this time, like I got to do six week sequence and I get to work with kids over time. So start out with them when they are three, finish up with them when they were in first grade. Um, and that was a really amazing experience and to watch them um, become more practiced at it. It's not that, you know, it's a structure. It's kind of how they naturally are. In early childhood, you know, present in the moment um, and also learning about how to self-regulate. And that's the thing I think that mindfulness does the most 
is really grow that area of the brain for everybody, adults included, um, build that gray matter for self-regulation. Yes. Yes. And it's so important. Um, I also wanted to just mention that I went to a Montessori middle school and that was like, I did yoga as part of my curriculum there. Like that was our gym and stuff. And, um, it was so interesting to go because I went to a public elementary and then this middle school in a Montessori setting and then back to like a public high school. And the skills that I learned during the Montessori middle school really just set me up for so much success going back into a more public setting. Um, so I think that that's interesting that you mentioned that because when you said I started meditating around 27, I was like, I guess I actually started meditating like around 10 or 11 because right. of my school, which was great. Um, it's, it's really interesting. And, I, you know, I've been a, a meditator and I've done it in spiritual traditions, both um, with Hindu teachers and Buddhist teachers. Um, and then after this experience, I was like, I really want to get more into this, uh, the secular, you know, component of this. So I started studying at the Brown University Mindful Center, and I've got myself recognized um, by them for, to be a mindfulness-based stress reduction trainer, which is an, an adult program. Um, and that's who this, you know, kind of what I'm working with is how do I help parents and teachers to, to embrace these sort of tools and these practices so that they can be fully present with the kids that they're serving. Um, in ways that uh, teach kids self-regulation, which oftentimes require adults to have their own regulation online and to be fully present. So that's, I've sort of taken these two different ideas about, you know, adults and kids and woven them together. Yes. Okay. Well then let's dive in a little bit deeper into, so when you say that you use the tools for the adults and children's lives, what are some ways that you've seen works really well in communicating with caregivers um, about like how to be more mindful and present in the moment with the kids that they're taking care of? So, I mean, I've been putting together some activities that give people the experience of what it is like to perhaps, you know, like in communication, right? right? To be mindfully listened to and not mindfully listened to. <laughs> and in early childhood, especially, you know, my, that connection that I have with my caretaker teaches me how to be socially and emotionally competent, basically. Um, so the, the ability to have somebody be with me, be present with me, helps me to understand and develop empathy, I begin to understand and be able to map what's happening inside of other people's minds. And so if people don't do that for me, if they don't look at me and directly engage with me in the moment, then I don't learn that skill. All I'm doing for the rest of my life is guessing based on people's facial features. I'm not able to do that mind mapping thing that we as humans have the capacity to do. Um, and especially in this particular moment in time when there are so many distractions, right? We have one in all of us in our pocket um, to figure out how to be mindful in a, in a moment, right? When 
your phone is buzzing in your pocket and a child is also wanting your attention at the same time. It's a practice. Yeah. Yeah, it is. And it's important (laughs) for everyone. And I'm saying this very loudly to myself, uh, to keep in mind that it's not linear. You're not going to do it perfectly every time. Um, and that in those mistakes or missteps, there's a lot of fertile ground for learning there too, for everyone involved. I love that. Yeah. Because the mistakes, that is the whole learning process, right? And if it was super easy to be present in the moment and breathe, we would all be doing it all the time, but it's not how we're wired as humans, right? So we're wired to survive in, you know, the jungle where there are big predators. So we're constantly scanning the environment around us for um, potential threat. And so that gives us a negativity bias and, you know, which is also a bias toward anxiety and future thinking. So Um, we have to practice to do something different than that. We have to create really strong neural pathways and we can't just like do it for a year. Like you have to do it every day. That's how intense that neurological programming is towards a negativity bias towards anxiety. Yeah. Um, What are some ways that, that caregivers can practice that are like, I guess two different ways of practicing one with the child in front of you. And then also on your own, like you go to the gym to train. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. So, um, when we're talking about kids three and uh, I would say in particular under three, you know, all they are is like sponges taking in everything global. They are the most wired to be the most mindful stage, I think, of human development. And so really, I think for many years in the, like the scientific community, there is this belief that they weren't, even though they were present in those ways, they weren't really conscious and they weren't bringing a whole lot of cognition to the table. But really um, a lot of research in the last 10 years even has shown that actually they are. And that if we're attentive to where kids are babies who are pre-communication are gazing, if we're attentive to their body language, then they really are doing a significant amount of communicating with us. So when we have um, opportunities to be with them around things like changing diapers or just playing or being in space together, um, we want to treat and respect them as if they were any other person, like we would treat, you know, an adult, our best friend, those kinds of things. Um, We want to be using words and narrating and describing whatever it is that we're doing to help with language development for the, the growing brain. Again, from zero to six, that brain is like a sponge and they're just sucking it up. So we're going to be giving them as much language as possible. And then we want to be also developing a sense of agency inside them in particular around uh, their bodies. So talking to them about what's going to happen next. So they're aware that's part of the narration process too. Um, And then, you know, moving as, as as soon as we're able to understand their communication style, right. What they're saying to us in, in their nonverbal ways, like asking permission before we touch their bodies, 
teaching other people, other adults who didn't grow up that way to do the same thing. Um, and then respecting the child's wishes once we were able to understand them, whether they're pre-verbal or are verbal as well. Um, when we come to our older kids whose personalities are able to be expressed through language with clarity, then um, we want to not be making assumptions. We want to be asking questions, um, finding out what's going on, and then just to developing their ability to communicate and, um, and interact. We want to be ping-ponging with them, right? We ask a question, they respond, which furthers a, a communication loop to help them develop um, their communication skills and their cognition, right? We don't want to be asking yes, no questions. We want to be developing that sense of wonder about the world and the ability to um, be analytical, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I loved all of that. Um, and a lot of what Jill just mentioned, we have specific uh, podcasts about. So, uh, we have a podcast about bodily autonomy and consent um, that covers a lot of what Jill was saying. We have um, a podcast about infants, actually a two-parter about infants, which I know could be a million-parter, but for now we have two parts. (laughs) So much new research out right now. It's insane. Yes. Yes. Um, And that one's from five years ago. So I know that it's, I need to do another one. Um, But yes, I, I totally agree. And so I often take uh, the baby that is in my care right now. We go on walks and we do scavenger hunts and not necessarily that he is like pointing out (laughs) things, but I'll say, you know, let's look for circles and then we'll walk around and he's in the stroller and we'll stop and we'll I'll, you know, point the stroller towards the circle and we'll look at it and I'll talk about what color the circle is and all of the stuff on our walk. And it gives us both something to do. (laughs) Um, And now he's, that was when more when I first started, now he's able to like actually go kind of play more at a playground and in a sandbox and stuff. But, um, but yeah, there's so many ways to talk (laughs) to infants. And I think that sometimes we get nervous that we're going to look crazy or that we're going to like, um, you know, like it, it seems very, um, sometimes like you are talking into the void, but you're not because they're little sponges, (laughs) just like you said. Um, and that it is, it is really important, uh, to use as many words around them as you can in context. I, I, I don't remember where I heard this, but it really made a huge impact on me. Um, they were talking about how in some Asian cultures, you know, the mother is given this time alone with the baby where they're isolated away from anybody else. And so, oh, I know it was an Indian friend of mine actually. And she was talking about to- toilet training in her culture. And, um, and so the mother in that as part of that process, the mother learns to read the baby's cues and, and she can tell when the baby is going to the toilet or needs to go to the toilet and she'll just hold the baby over uh, a potty. Um, and eventually, you know, so that diapers are rarely used. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, that's how much information is there if we are, have, take the time to be mindful to it. And also if we even know to look, 
right? right? So if we live in a culture that has beliefs that babies got not a whole lot going on upstairs, then then we can't even see it. Right. Yeah, that is a really good point. And yeah, I because like even the infant that I'm working with right now, the other day we just discovered we were looking for his passy, which we call a ba. Um, and we were looking for that. And the dad and I were like talking. We were like, do you know where it is? Like it's nap time, all this stuff. And <laughs> the baby went over to a chair where it sometimes gets stuck under the little flap of fabric and like lifted it up and was looking with us mm-hmm. for his passy. I was just blown away. And like the dad and I like stopped talking. We were like, oh my gosh, do you see this? It was really wonderful. And it is, it's like, I did not know that he was listening that carefully, you know, like, mm-hmm. and I study children for, for my, my living. So yeah, it is. Um, that's a really good point about our own biases getting in the way of communicating. Absolutely. And then when it comes to caretakers, you know, just starting to develop some regular practices around different mindful sitting, mindful movement practices. So that you become aware of your what's happening in your own body so that you can take care of it. Well, you become aware of um, what's happening emotionally for you and that your ability to name your emotions with granularity, right. Also helps you to be more, to have a bigger sense of agency in your life, right? If you, because if you know what's going on, then you can respond in a more um, wise way uh, and a more impactful way. So, if, if you are out there modeling agency, right, which is so crucial to our sense of wellness in the world, then young people are going to see that and um, and learn that, and as well as well as the ability to recognize and name their own feelings, which is so huge for self regulation. So with our, with our youngest kids, we want to be noticing what's happening for them, identify what feelings they're having as we see them so that they begin to develop that skill of not just recognizing happy, you know, sad, um, angry, et cetera, but really the more emotions, the more words we have, the more that we can identify again, the better we can respond to the information that's coming from our very wise bodies. Mm-hmm. So, and that's what the emotions are, they're information. And if we don't have access to them, we're, it's like we're missing a sense, I think. Yeah, absolutely. And I, um, I have found it to be helpful to have within sight of your play area, <laughs> Um, a, you know, a chart with faces and feelings on it, or for older kids, a feelings wheel. I have a feelings wheel pillow in my apartment. (laughs) Exactly. So is that for you? Yeah, it is. Yeah. So, so what, what Martha is talking about is one, a wheel that's got 80 feelings on it. And that is not for your young child. That's for you. And it's really helpful if you have access to that. I think um, the Canadian Health Ministry has one online too, a PDF that um, 
I, I've been spending some time with as well and thinking about how to use with parents and caretakers uh, just because of all of this emerging research around adults' ability to name and identify emotions with granularity because uh, it's uh, certainly not how I was raised and certainly not how anybody I you know <laughs> worked with was modeling anything. Yeah. So, and I was even raised in a house. My dad is a therapist and my mom was a counselor turned teacher. So like I was even raised in like one of the best environments to be naming our feelings. And I still struggle with it. And my parents still struggle with it. And like, you know, so it is, um, which one of the reasons that I have this feelings wheel <laughs> pillow is because I, um, I now do my own therapy from my couch. So it's like here for me when I do that. And I also, um, when I am working in class and things like that, it's nice to just have 80 different feelings available to me to like look over and, and see. And I think printing out the feelings wheel and pull it, putting it up on your wall would also be helpful to have that access to that at times well and you're making me think about what my wall is like in my office um, um that might not make a bad wallpaper on my computer screen now that, yeah. <laughs> That's but a good... you're gonna have to tell me where you got that pillow <laughs> I, I will after this call i will <laughs> but yeah um and if they want to sponsor me i would tell them on the podcast <laughs> <laughs> Um, but yeah, I think that there also is this idea of parenting and caretaking because it happens in the nanny world too, where it's like, I'm so busy. I'm so busy. I don't have time to meditate. And I think of, there's like that <clears throat> story that gets told sometimes of the teacher who is like, you should be meditating 15 minutes every day or whatever. And then the person says, I don't have time. And they say, oh, then you need to be meditating an hour every day. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, and also there's what we consider to be meditation. There's formal and informal practice. So do you brush your teeth? How long does that take? About 10 or 15 minutes. And so you can practice being mindful, you know, paying attention to your senses in that moment. I, I never knew how ticklish my gums were until I paid attention while I brushed my teeth. Wow, so, yeah. so just being the idea, like why we practice in a formal way is so that it can leak into our lives into all kinds of informal moments and be how we move more and more throughout our life. <clears throat> if it was easy, <laughs> we would all be doing it all the time. It's breathing and noticing your senses, which are, you know, fully active all the time and it's one of the hardest things I find to do um and it's taken me you know a couple of decades to get to where I was doing it on a daily basis um and even then you know it comes in waves because <laughs> sometimes stuff happens in life yes for sure I'm also curious about for those who are new to 
a meditation practice or a mindfulness practice, a lot of times that can bring up some pretty big or uncomfortable feelings, right? (laughs) That you maybe have been doing a good job of like running so fast in your hamster wheel that you didn't really sit with. Um, And I, I certainly would advise anyone who is going through that to seek out therapy would be one piece of advice. Um, But I'm curious if you have other ideas for folks who do have big feelings that come up for them. Sure. So, so my favorite metaphor about this is a story that Pima Chodron tells. And she says, <clears throat> if you imagine that your mind is like a lake and, um, and, and it's been kind of rough and choppy until now, and then all of a sudden the water's still, right? You get to the place where you find uh, a little bit of clarity and um, presence with whatever is happening. And then you can see at the bottom, to the bottom of the lake, now that the water is still and there, you know, could potentially be an entire <clears throat> junkyard of things <laughs> that might need to be addressed. And so um, there's been a lot of work, especially by a guy by the name of David Trelevin around trauma-informed mindfulness. And so we definitely kind of integrate, how do you address big feelings if they become overwhelming throughout the whole um, trainings that we do so that people know you can always, you know, try this, this, or this strategy. And, um, and then I make myself available, you know, it, it should, here's my, here's my email. Don't hesitate to reach out, um, as well, but just like really focusing in on senses, stopping what you're doing or in terms of meditating or just changing. So if you're lying, doing a lying down practice, doing a sitting practice, if you're doing a sitting practice, standing up, those are all things that help um, if one becomes emotionally overwhelmed while meditating. And, um, and you know, like when I do the eight-week mindfulness-based stress reduction courses, I definitely do an intake process with people because um, I don't recommend that if you had a recent death in your family or, you know, anything big like that, that you, that you dive right into this, right? There is a season for everything. Right. And so... Um, yeah, so those are, that's a great point to bring up, uh, as well. And these are interesting times that we're living in and, and most people, I mean, there's really almost nobody who hasn't been traumatically isolated in the last 18 months. So, right. cause we are pack animals and to be separated from our pack is a, <clears throat> a painful thing. So it's very present in the work that I'm doing right now with folks for sure. I imagine so. Yes. This episode is sponsored by Our Nanny Diary. I am so excited to tell you about Our Nanny Diary because I have used this product in my nanny day and it is a total game changer. I use their communication log, which is a bound book that you get that you can communicate with parents. And it's so wonderful because it is made by nannies for nannies. So the the way that it is formatted and laid out is so 
great for making communication easy without as much mental load from you. They have cues for exactly what you should write down and check boxes for things like what time a, a diaper change happened, things like that. Um, but they're also more than just communication logs. They have amazing downloadable packets that can offer help to families and nannies. They have downloads that help with household management, templates for check-in meetings, which can be hard to navigate if it's your first time, specific downloads for infant care and a nanny education educator bundle with lesson plans and more. They even have introduced a nanny evaluation bundle when it's time to discuss that raise, which is so helpful. And coming soon, they have a nanny onboarding bundle to ensure success with new nanny family relationships. I highly recommend you visit OurNannyDiary.com and look at the choices that would work well for you and your nanny day. Be sure to follow them on social media, Facebook and Instagram for great resources, specials, tips to use their diaries, and more. Visit OurNannyDiary.com today. And then I, I also am wondering about for introducing this for a nanny who maybe has their own uh, practice outside of nannying, but they're not sure how to bring that into working with children. What are some strategies for starting, um, to help children <laughs> like sure. with those so, big feelings? <laughs> well, just, just in general, like sensory play is mindfulness. So if you are, you know, so you can do sound activities, touching activities, tasting activities, that's all the mindfulness practice, right? And um, so, you know, like I do a formal thing with teaching adults about mindful eating, but, um, you know, having kids try and match different flavors or different smells, those kinds of things um, is, that's a mindfulness practice. There are so much, uh, so many picture books out right now. It's crazy. It's like an explosion about, um, about mindfulness and mindful practices. Uh, one of my, well, I don't know. Can I, should I, should I name books yeah, or no? Yeah, okay. Yeah. So lemonade hurricane. I don't know if you're familiar with this one is my favorite and it gets right at, you know, it's about a, a, a young kid who is really, um, uh, very energetic shall we say mm -hmm. and his older sister and so sometimes he does things that really upset her or hurt her um and so she teaches him how to meditate and so Love that. <laughs> and yeah it's really cool so I and it goes through you know it teaches all of the different things reasons why we might um meditate and I, I've had good luck with using that with kids who are four and older um the um there are a whole there's a little mindful me series that's out right now um the there's another really good one about um mindful monkey peaceful panda mm -hmm. that i really like that one as well and then there's moody cow books those are also really great as well um you know with my well, and any of the stuff that you do around emotional, you know, naming of feelings and all that kind of stuff. And in, in when we sit and we practice, those things arise. But the more skillful we are at 
naming what arises again, that sense of agency, which is so important to our, our wellness throughout our whole lives, <clears throat> is more able to be skillfully um, engaged. The, what I have found works best, I've tried to do like bell meditations with um, youngest kids, is candle meditations. So because there is this uh, sensory awareness around the candle, um, it really keeps anybody who might be a, a giggler or it, you know, feel uncomfortable because it can be uncomfortable to sit in silence if you've never done it before. It gives them something to focus on and it totally just like avoids all of that stuff. So um, I, I will get a candle, I will light the candle. I'll talk about fire safety while I do that, which is a goal of everybody in early childhood is who works with young kids for them to learn fire safety. And then at the end, if I'm working with a group of kids, we rotate who gets to blow out the candle. Come on, who doesn't want to blow out a candle, yeah. right? Yeah. <laughs> and if you're just working with one kid in, a, in, your, in a, a nanny situation, then it will be that. Or you could take turns if, if that's a goal for you and your young person <laughs> is for them to learn how to take turns. So one day it can be your turn. Another day it can be theirs. And, you know, like I would say from three years old, we start, the goal is 30 seconds. We're not, we're not talking massive time here. And then, you know, as we get to five years old, we're doing a solid minute, you know? Right. So incremental baby steps. It's just a practice. We're just building a foundation for this is something that you can do. And then you can focus on different things when you are meditating. So you can focus on sounds in the environment or you can focus on breath. So you can teach a whole bunch of different incremental skills um, and sort of tools to work with inside the environment. Um, you can focus in on other senses, like what can you see or what can you smell or those kinds of things as well, um, which is exactly what we would do in a much longer process, right? With adults in a, uh, in a mindfulness-based stress reduction course. So yeah, um, that's a lot. That'll keep you busy for you know a while. <laughs> for sure. But I really love that. And I, there is something magical about a candle or, you know, I remember some of my best memories growing up were around a campfire and it's that mm -hmm. similar idea of like, everyone's watching the fire dance and, you know, and like, we're telling stories together and we're all really present <laughs> right. usually around a campfire. So, Ooh, you just reminded me there's a book by, um, Alki called the listening walk and that's a really good one to um to read and then there's a little at the very end of it is like you can it'll stop and listen to what can you hear kind of thing and so and that's practicing mindfulness meditation with kids in that particular moment and then you can build that practice into you know after you light the candle to start to listen and then after I do that with kids then we stop at when we're done and everybody talks about what they heard. And that's also very exciting yeah. and building of language skills. Yeah, very much. So I have had success with, uh, the book alpha breaths, which mm -hmm. is like goes through the alphabet with different breathing styles. So like an alligator breath or a bear breath. I can't remember what they all are, uh -huh. but I know my nanny kids favorites because now when we need to take breaths, I can also build in this choice 
of like which kind of breath do you want to take and nice. have that language built already um so it's that I have found success with in those moments where we are getting overwhelmed to say let's breathe together how do you want to do it um do you want to take alligator breaths lion breaths things like that so great yeah um and yeah so I love that idea for like incrementally building mindfulness into our day. What about when we do need to like (laughs) call on some of those skills that we've been working on, how can we, um, like if we're out and about and you notice your, your nanny kid is starting to get overwhelmed. How can we recall some of those skills that we've been working on in our somewhat more daily practice um, to help bring it into those moments? Yeah. And that's kind of, that's exactly what I was talking about on the adult level, the difference between formal and informal practice. Right. So, I mean, I, I probably at some point you'll notice a meltdown happen and maybe it doesn't go the way that you want it to go. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, in a neutral moment, reflecting on that saying, Oh, wow. I noticed that when we were at the park, you got really overwhelmed. <clears throat> We've been practicing some things, um, about what to do when we get overwhelmed or we have some tools. Do you remember what they are? And then reviewing some tools and then saying, so maybe we could think about two of these to keep in our back pocket when we go to the park, right? And then, you know, sometimes I have created little visual cues for kids. Um, I might have like, when I was working in a school building, I had an idea around my neck and so did their teachers. So sometimes we might put little reminder cards right with them on the teacher's ID badge, you know? And then the child became overwhelmed, she could just, so if you're maybe on your keychain, if you're the nanny, right? You have, here's our tools reminder. And then you can just pull out, oh, which tool did you want to pick? Here we are. We're in this place mm-hmm. where we just talked about. Yeah. So reflection, okay. right? And if we think about learning, you know, mistakes are part of learning and so is reflection. Mm-hmm. So we, when we make a mistake, then we don't just, you know, we can reflect on it and deepen our learning. How about that? And so much of what's happening is skill building with our youngest um, humans. And so, and that takes practice and co-regulation with somebody that we trust and care about. So, and, and just like, um, in your, in your own practice, right. You know, sometimes you're going to fall off the horse or whatever. The same thing is true for kids. Right. And remembering that the area of the brain around self-regulation is not fully developed until kids are seven. So they're going to need you to co-regulate with them and to, and it, so it's completely developmentally appropriate that they're not always able to manage their feelings on their own and that they might need some physical comfort or somebody besides them to, I think as somebody in a, uh, a training I was doing recently said, you know, her daughter said to her, mommy, I want you to sit by me and help me to think the calm through, mm-hmm. right? So that whole sense that whole, that we do it together, right? It's, it is part of human development, right? I have to do it hundreds and hundreds of times 
with an adult before I can do it by myself. Right. And even then, like the more I learn about co-regulation, like I'm just like, you mean I'm still co-regulating with my partner as a grown up? What? Anyway, yeah. so I, the whole, I think just as attachment theory kind of gets more widely understood and discussed and made understandable for, you know, the average person that I don't know, there's just so much information right now yeah. about how to be, you know, about social and emotional learning and competency and how it happens throughout our whole lives. That was just not available even five years ago. Right. For sure. Um, yeah. And I, I think that that's a really good point because I think I even fall into the trap sometimes of like, you had this, like you had this skill last week, what happened? Um, And like allowing for that, that grace and the learning curve and the, I, you know, I, I started back to school. And so some skills are gonna like drop off, Um, you know, like, when kids go back to school, they're learning in one direction so hard that a lot of times some of those other skills drop off and you're like, oh, right. Or you get that restraint collapse when you pick them up and you're like, what, Mm. where is the child that I dropped off today? (laughs) Right. And even, even development, right. I, I noticed that sometimes kids would just like, what? what is happening with this child, you know? And then they lose the tooth. And then the next nice. thing, you know, they're reading. So sometimes different areas of their brain are developing and it sort of like takes away from the energy available for other parts of um, brain development or not necessarily brain development, but it's just, it's, it's a lot, you know? Or they grow to like wake up and you measure them and they're two inches taller than they were two months ago. Yes. So. And you're like, no wonder you didn't sleep well. Like you were probably in pain. <laughs> like, yep. Those bones stretching out hurts. Absolutely. Um, so I'm told I'm only five foot two. I didn't really <laughs> experience that many growing pains. <laughs> but one of my nanny bosses, one of the dads who is like six foot six, like very tall was like, Ooh. I remember, like, I can vividly remember the pain of growing. (laughs) I "I bet. I don't remember. (laughs) But yeah, I, I also think that, and I know that we, we touched on it before, but really modeling your own naming to tame your feelings, like Mm -hmm. modeling that (laughs) out loud in front of the children that you care for often like today I was getting I was really frustrated the baby did not want their diaper changed but it was like I really had to because the parents were about to leave with the baby and etc cetera, etc cetera. so like it had to happen right then the other nanny kid really wanted my attention and was um asking for it in a somewhat unsafe way so then had to pause the diaper anyway back and forth And I was like, you know what? I am feeling overwhelmed and very frustrated right now. Um, And that really, the older kid, it really got, 
his attention. I mean, he's four. And it, he was like, oh, you're frustrated. And I was like, yeah. And then like, and then he was on my team again, you know, like, Mm -hmm. and I was like, you know, what would really help me is if you could go find a toy that would allow me to change your brother's diaper. Um, maybe find a toy for him, one that he can hold in his hands. And then he went on a hunt and came back and it would just like totally redirected the whole moment. And I think sometimes we we forget about that tool in our tool belt. Right. And, and so not only does it help you getting emotionally granular about how you're going to get into the sense of agency, but it also is connecting. So then the child was able to connect with you and have empathy and then you were able to redirect in a way that there was buy-in, cooperation, and participation. And so that's an important one too, is to connect with kids. So connecting, it's amazing. Connecting with yourself is a doorway to connecting with other people. And it's, the, you know, that metaphor about putting the oxygen mask on yourself before you put it on your child on the plane, right? So when we're mindful and aware of what's going on inside of our bodies, inside our hearts, inside our minds, then um, then that's available for the kids that are in our care as well. And I really appreciated what we were talking about before, you know, this whole thing about like, what else is going on for a young child in early childhood? Um, and, and so how can we be compassionate for kids when they're having those moments or, and how can we be compassionate for ourselves, right? Cause there's in a way they're the same thing. What's happening inside of me is happening for everybody else in the environment because um, of mirror neurons, right? So if I am uh, calm and at ease, then that gets communicated to other, other neurons and they will mirror it back towards me, especially young kids. Um, we have as adults, the ability to shift, you know, make a choice when our mirror neurons get activated. But again, that's part of that whole self-regulation stuff that doesn't fully come online until um, we're a little bit older. So that this whole making friends with oneself, it, uh, which then allows us to be friendlier with others is a, a huge part of the mindfulness process. And, you know, um, there are a lot of great things about our culture and there uh, are some pretty damaging things about our culture. And those things are the first place we are taught about them is inside our families. So many people who are working with young children might've had some traumatic experiences themselves when they were in, in their own childhood where they were taught what their position is inside of uh, hierarchy inside of their culture or whatever culture, you know, they live in. And so um, the ability to recognize, you know, young children also mirror back to us so much of the, any kind of wounds we might have inside ourselves as adults that were given to us in our childhood. Um, it's an observation, I mean, opportunity for us to become curious about those things and then and heal those things. Because when we are taken to the past, as we interact with a child, we're no longer here in this moment and we're no longer fully available for the connection. So um, mindfulness also gives us an opportunity to be aware 
of when we're magically transported to the past and then think how do I how do I approach this uh, old wound with wisdom what inner or outer resources can I access to help me heal that so that I can be more fully here with the young people in my life yeah yeah which is very difficult and challenging work and some of the most important work you'll ever do in your whole life. I mean, that yep. is it, right? That's that's the spot. Right. And I kind of feel like, you know, that's what, uh, I don't know, it's the work of adult life mm-hmm. is to recognize those things that happened and heal them and then uh, be available to help other people do the same thing. Right. Yeah. That is <laughs> certainly, uh, I, and I, I know there are a lot of nannies out there that one of the reasons that they are called to this work is, um, their own trauma and desire to break cycles, um, intergenerational cycles and, and all of that good stuff. So I feel like the, the field of nannying is, um, full of folks who are, are called to this kind of work. Um, and I have another program that I've started to develop. I was talking to you about earlier called prismatic parenting, which is, which really centers this idea about healing ourselves from what, um, uh, some psychologists refer to as adultism, right? Mm-hmm. The idea that in the world that, the isms that exist, right? The biases and the prejudices, the first place that we learn about them is inside our families, right? And so um, so there's huge opportunity for us all um, to uh, heal from that if we recognize those things. And just like um, whenever anybody's feelings are hurt, right? There are major ways to disperse the, um, all of the stressful chemicals and thought patterns that come up around uh, a painful event. Um, but part of that process of adultism is actually not allowing for that dispersal, right? Which then internalizes all of that stress in our bodies from a really young age. And then that's some stuff that can later lead to, um, both social challenges and then also physical illness. So one of the I love this piece of knowledge, right? So there may be five major ways for dispersing big feelings, crying, shaking, gross motor activity, uninterrupted talking, those kinds of things. And most of those are components of a tantrum. Yeah, they are. So a tantrum is like the perfect storm of emotional dispersal so that then you can return to self-regulation and we as a culture think that that is the most undesirable thing that exists in early childhood is a tantrum so it's actually wise knowledge on the part of bodies anyway but so of the adult version um, we do a lot of the uninterrupted talking piece so we uh, practice a kind of mindful communication where one person just talks in a completely um confidential 
context with another person and the other person just listens. And that's one of the ways that we can heal from, um, from the adultism in our childhood. And then if we are caretaking for um, LGBTQ youth, or if we are an LGBTQ plus caretaker, uh, we might have some specific, some particular experiences around um, that part of our, our identity or the, that part of other people's identities that uh, we might want to heal so that we can be fully present um, and healed and whole ourselves and then uh, more effective as we work with our uh, children or the young people that we care for. Yeah. Can you help me fully understand adultism? Is it that idea of like, I'm big, you're small, I'm right, you're wrong. That whole speech. Right. <laughs> I'm right. I'm, I'm right. You're wrong. I can, inv- I have the power to invalidate your feelings. I have the power physically to make you do what I want because I'm bigger than you. Right. Mm-hmm. So, um, so you want, you know, again, if I, if I don't, if I'm not free to uninterruptedly talk about how this thing just hurt me, I'm told, you know, be seen and not heard who asked you those kinds of things. Those are the things. So emotional invalidation is part of it. And that invalidation can also look like getting physically hurt as well, or I, or even having approval removed, right? Somebody's huffing and puffing and angry at me, those kinds of things. And then, so what, what do I do? Well, I'm going to do what I just learned to somebody who is smaller than me or is not as socially powerful as me. Like if I'm a, a male and I have female siblings or things like that. So I'm going to turn around and do that there. And then I'm going to move into my parents move into institutions, right? There are people who run schools. There are people who run businesses. And so this habit of us, not of us invalidating people, both with physicality and with our words, um, which is a very, our brains literally read that as pain, right? Yeah. (laughs) And so, um, and then we're, if we're experiencing pain in our workplaces or in our schools, then we're not doing our best work. You know, we're not, there's no space for us to be innovators or risk takers or those kinds of things. So it moves then from the home into our institutions. And so, you know, if we can figure out how to heal it in the home, then we're going to end up with different institutions. Yeah, that's beautiful. Thank you for clarifying. (laughs) Yeah, appreciate the question. Um, wonderful. Well, we, I mean, I love talking with you about these things and I would love to keep talking, but we're almost out of time. And so I'm curious for nannies who want to learn more, um, what I I know you have some courses coming up and things like that. Where can they find out more about how to, how to learn more from you? Sure. So um, I have a couple of free introductions to uh, Mindful Baby Mindful Preschooler, which is what I call the where I explore the elements of mindfulness and mindful caretaking with folks coming up um, in the middle of October. And then in November, I have a four hour workshop, which gets more into the practices. So we have time to practice, to do some mindful sitting and some a little bit of mindful movement, which is like supersonically slow yoga kind of thing. <laughs> um, and also some practices that you might want to do with, uh, with kids, such as 
candle gazing and things like that. Um, and then, but you can find out about four and, and register for those things on my website, www.mindfulsel.com. The SEL stands for social and emotional learning. And then I think in November, there's also a free introduction to prismatic parenting too. And you, you, if you are a nanny or you're a teacher, you are a caretaker for LGBTQ youth at yes. some point, you know, like <laughs> some kid that you work with is going to grow up, you know, there's a one in five chance. So, yes. um, <laughs> and uh, even if they are not LGBTQ plus, one of my former nanny kids, her best friend is non-binary, you know, like it's, it, it will touch them in some way. Right. So anybody who's interested in, uh, liberation and healing and the caretaking context is welcome to come to that program. So it centers the experience of LGBTQ plus caretakers and young people, but everybody's welcome because, you know, it's just like you said, we're, we are all together in families, you know, we're all together in homes and schools and in workplaces. So um, healing of one person benefits us all. Very true. Very true. Um, and all of those links will be down in the show notes. So if you are driving or doing dishes, um, do not worry. You do not have to write it all down. Um, it's down there waiting for you. Click on it. Um, wonderful. Well, we end each episode with a fun, cute story and Jill has brought one. Okay. So my, uh, I talked a little bit about the school where I was a social and emotional learning consultant. I mean, uh, sorry, early childhood social and emotional learning specialist in China. So I ended up when COVID started, I had come back to the States for a holiday and then, um, and then we went online. So I was teaching my kids online and I had worked with them long enough where, you know, there were several families where there were two or three kids in the school. And so I might be, be the, still the youngest kids teacher, but the older kids had gone through the yoga and meditation practice with me. So, um, you know, in this particular weirdness of having everybody be socially isolated for the first time in recent history, um, we did a lot of work around how can you take care of yourself and self-regulation. So, you know, I was challenging kids to meditate every day or do a variety of different mindfulness practices. So they started posting these pictures of themselves and their older siblings all sitting together and meditating. I was so moved and touched. I was like, oh, that's a whole family of meditators now, you know, who've come through. So um, it was, it just, it made my heart happy to see. Yes. I love that so much. All of them sitting together and like, what a wonderful, yeah, family event. <laughs> that is, that's a lot of healing in one family. Right. And then just support for each other. Yeah. Right. Cause that's, you know, as people go through mindfulness trainings with me, I definitely encourage them to find a community of support because, you know, these are new neural pathways and, you know, again, we, we're trying to survive from being chased by predators time. So to have a community where people help you to get back in that path and stay there with regularity is really important. So to have it be inside your own family is, I know my, my partner's oldest daughter is getting ready to do my next MBSR class. And it's kind of blowing my mind. So yes, that's wonderful. That's yeah. Wonderful. 
Um, awesome. Well, thank you so much, Jill. I really appreciate uh, you coming back on the show and talking to us about mindfulness. I always learn so much from you. Well, thanks for having me. It's so fun to talk to you. And uh, thanks, nannies out there for taking the time to listen. Yeah, seriously, look into those courses. I'm going to be looking into them as well. So maybe I'll see you there. (laughs) And thank you all for listening. We'll see you next week. Bye-bye. The Chronicles of Nannia is produced and hosted by Martha Tyler. Artwork by Noni Blastodon. Theme music by Brad Kemp. Find him at secondbedroomstudios.com. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Chronicles of Nannia and on Twitter at Nannia Podcast. To contact us, email chroniclesofnannia at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. This show has been brought to you by Machine Culture.